obviously when you start to get to Deadpool, you're, you're hitting these cascading effects where there's not enough flow in the river for ecosystem health. You're also um, not getting power and power revenue, which funds a lot of the other kind of like functions of the river. So that's kind of like, I think it's a pretty clear tipping point for the point where the river is is maxed out and is not functioning in the way that we as a society have relied on it and expected it to function for the past going on hundred years. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The ski bum is a mythical creature. It is someone who has forsaken ambition and material comfort for something purer, high mountains, big adventure, and the pursuit of the perfect ski run. Vermont is filled with ski bums past and present who live for powder days. And, full disclosure, the pursuit of powder and mountains is part of what drew me to Vermont three decades ago. Ski bums have had a tough go lately. Climate change and economic hardship have taken a toll. New England just endured the warmest January in its history. Powder days are fewer and farther between, and Airbnb has done away with many of the couches that ski bums once surfed. They've also come in for criticism for pursuing a lifestyle that is primarily only available to privileged white men. Journalist Heather Hansman explores the modern reality of ski bumming in her new book, Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. She journeys from Vermont to Colorado and back to tell the stories of people who have crafted their lives around snowy mountains. Hansman is the environmental columnist for Outside Online and has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, and other publications. She's also the author of Down River, Into the Future of Water in the West. I reached her at her home in Durango, Colorado. Heather Hansman, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. So tell us a little of your story. I know it starts in the Northeast, but makes its way West pretty quickly. Um, but give us, the, uh, give us the, the Heather Hansman story. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess it starts in Massachusetts, which I don't know if you're supposed to admit in Vermont, <laughs> but um, I grew up uh, Massachusetts in keeps Vermont afloat. So, you know, yeah, sure. no, no problem. That's probably true. Um, I grew up uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, in a family that got outside quite a bit. Um, my kind of into the mountains in Vermont and New Hampshire and I went to college in Maine um, and maybe to back up a little bit when I was in high school I went to a public high school in Cambridge um, and the high school had a really active ski club and if you um, sold breakfast at the high school you could ski for free so in high school um, we would go on weekend trips, mainly to Sugar Rush. We did a couple to Quebec and a couple to places in Maine. But um, that sort of seeded this love that I had for skiing in a lot of ways. So that was kind of like a way to be outside and be adventurous and be in the mountains and hang out with like the cool older kids. Um, so skiing started there for me in a lot of ways. Um, I went to college in Maine at Colby 
And I um, spent my summers there working as a raft guide on the Kennebec and the Penobscot, kind of the rivers up there. And I had this idea in my head that I wanted to move to the mountains after college. And, you know, like once I kind of got through a school, I wanted to move west, which is, I think, in a lot of ways, kind of this uh, mythical American story, which is, you know, problematic in a lot of ways. But I had this idea that I would move to the mountains and everything would be kind of adventurous and exciting. Um, and the guy that I raft guided with there, uh, worked in the mountains of Colorado in the winters and he told me that he could get me and some of my friends jobs there so kind of sight unseen when I was 21 I like hopped in my little sedan two-wheel drive car and moved to the mountains of Colorado so I guess that's the that's the going west story so what did you find when you moved west and where did you move to first I moved to Avon Colorado which is right at the base in the Vail Valley um, it's right at the base of Beaver Creek Mountain, and I worked there scanning with tickets, kind of working those, like, you know, hourly, seasonal jobs. I worked at a restaurant. I worked as a babysitter. I um, kind of, like, patched together a bunch of work. And I, in a lot of ways, it was close to kind of that, like, image or dream that I had of going west. Like, I was outside all the time. I was getting better at skiing and kind of figuring out how to be in the mountains um and I had this really fun group of friends um but it was also harder than I thought it was going to be um in a lot of ways you know working seasonal jobs in a lot of ways makes you sort of economically fragile um there were I had sort of like internal struggles about being able to keep up skiing and with the economic tone of the town um so I think right off the bat, when I kind of moved into the ski town, I had, I started hitting really, really high highs and kind of low lows too, which I think in a lot of ways is one of the big stories about skiing. Explain what you mean. What were the high highs <laughs> and what were the yeah, low maybe lows? Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I think that, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I love the most about skiing that I think resonates with a lot of people that feel you know is that it's a way to be in in nature in the mountains um and in your body that's kind of not like anything else you're kind of um immune to gravity in a lot of ways that I don't think you are in any other sport um maybe biking downhill or something like that um, and so I think being able to, you know, I was working on the mountain, I was skiing all the time, um, being in that every day felt really, really incredible. Um, I saw with like a really great community that I think happens in a lot of small towns. Um, but then, you know, being in a place like the Vale Valley, where there's a lot of wealth and a lot of pressure and um, a lot of kind of transiency was also really really hard in a lot of ways does that does that answer your question a little bit or kind of start to get into yeah well I guess um moving to your decision to write uh your book powder days um did you or when did you begin to think of yourself as a ski bum and what did that mean to you yeah I think ski bum is such an interesting term I think I I sort of have like conflicted feelings about it. I don't know how you feel about it. Cause I think in, 
in some ways it's it's sort of an honorific, but I think in some ways it's something that you um, you don't want anybody else to call you that. You kind of want to call yourself that. And I think the idea, the way I think of the ski bomb or the dirt bag or the skid, or there's kind of a lot of other ways people frame it up, is that it's this idea of a person who has devoted their self to skiing kind of over everything else. And that's the fact that's kind of like the North Star of their life. And that might mean that they're, you know, like not working in the winter or living in some substandard conversation or uh, conditions, or maybe they sacrifice um, relationships for skiing or something like that. And I think in some ways it's, it's sort of like a, I think at its best, it's kind of almost like a Zen practice where you're like totally focused and driven. Um, but I think you can you can miss out on a lot of other things when you're doing that. And I think in my sort of writing about the idea of a ski bum and thinking about it, that was sort of, I thought a lot about kind of storytelling around skiing and around other sports too. And I think in the story of skiing, the ski bum is kind of this like emblem that we hold up as like the most dedicated and the most hardcore and the person who, who loves it the most. So that's kind of what I what I think about as a schema. And I don't know if I would necessarily call myself that. Like, I don't know if I ever was bought in enough or, you know, focused enough to, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I can really claim it. That's funny that, I mean, in reading your book and reading Powder Days, I don't think people would struggle too much with the question of whether you were a ski bum. But for you, you always kind of set it out there, this idea is something just beyond your reach, that if you were doing it, it must mean that what you were doing was not authentic enough to be worthy of such a title. Um, you write that um, for a dream that seems so bright, it is full of darkness. What do you mean by that? I mean, um, I think that, like I said, that kind of idea and the archetype of being a skier and being a ski bomb and kind of devoting yourself to it has this real kind of like beauty and purity to it. And I think it's like when you're when you're in a perfect ski turn, I think it is really beautiful. Um, but I think there are, this is sort of like the, the question at the core of the book for me, which is that is this idea of like devoting your life to skiing and being a ski bum, is that, is, is it good in the first place? Is it something worthy? And then also, you know, we hold it up as this like shiny thing. There's decades worth of ski movies about it, but there are some really hard parts to devoting your life to something like that. Um, and it was really interesting to me in doing the reporting on the book, I kind of traveled around to a bunch of different ski towns and would pop myself in these towns and kind of ask people, you know, like, who's the, who's the person I should talk to? Who's like the most hardcore skier in town? Um, and people were surprisingly willing to kind of like open up about their lives and what they were dealing with. And I, I heard a lot about how hard it was to find housing, how much people kind of living in these towns felt like they couldn't keep up economically. I heard a lot about struggles with um, drug and alcohol abuse and how, you know, if somebody who's working a kind of precarious seasonal job gets hurt, how much that can put them in the hole. Um, I heard a lot about that kind of, that idea that you were kind of hinting at before about sort of 
comparison, how hard it feels when you feel like you can't keep up physically or that you're not good enough to kind of, you know, be a part of the crew or be call yourself a skier. So there's sort of these, and then, you know, kind of overarching overall that is climate change and, you know, the winter that you guys have been having in the Northeast this year and how as the climate is changing, this thing that we love is getting harder, which feels like pretty grim and dark to me at its heart. So I think that there are these kind of like factors that make it really tricky that can, some of which are systematic, some of which are personal that can make it this like dream tricky and kind of like increasingly tricky as time goes on. So in the, you know, with the modern sensibilities about racial and social justice, the whole issue of who can be a ski bum and who is a ski bum has come in for a, a much closer and more critical look. Um, and you give it that yourself in the book. Uh, I want to read a quote from um, an article that just uh, appeared in uh, Outside Online or Ski Magazine, uh, Marty Fuller, who's an African-American skier and outdoors person. And she writes, the narrative around the ski bum romanticizes a life characterized by foregoing economic ladder climbing to achieve the joy of skiing 100 plus days a year. There's only one subset of the population who can safely, comfortably, and consistently pull off this lifestyle. White, cisgendered skiers, usually middle class or wealthier, usually men. Um, and she mentions your book as what she calls a problematic narrative. Uh, and, and she added one thing that I thought was quite um, interesting. She said, additionally, the celebrated ski bum lifestyle is physically dangerous for black people. While a white person might get a slap on the wrist if caught sneaking onto a resort or breaking any other rule, a black person could be arrested or worse. Um, I know that these this critical take on the ski bum is also very much a part of your writing, but I wonder how how do you respond to the points that uh, she raises in her column? Yeah. yeah, I think that that, and I think the column is really worth reading for anybody who hasn't looked at it yet, but I think the points that she raises are really important and true and really shape, you know, or shape and are shaped by this kind of idea of what the ski bum historically has been and what we should kind of strive to make skiing in the future. And I think she's totally right that like the archetype of a skier, you look at pretty much any ski movie, you look at the narrative, you look at pictures in magazines, that kind of archetype of the skier has been exactly what she said, you know, like a white, able-bodied, cisgender, straight male. And 90 plus percent of the, the media that we've seen, the stories that are told. And I think that idea of like who who feels safe and who feels welcome in a sport and who, um, you know, like socially, physically, economically is like such a crucial thing to be thinking about if we want skiing to exist in the future and if we want it to be like open and interesting. And I think, I know that that, that story has raised hackles among a lot of people because I think it challenges an idea that feels really comfortable to people who have been comfortable and, and you know myself included um and skiing has been you know demographically economically so narrow for so long and so much of that I mean 
so much of that is it it comes from the history of the sport which was started by white men and often kind of started in towns or resorts that were really some of them that were explicitly not welcome to people you know people who weren't white and some that were implicitly not welcome and we haven't done that much to change the sport and that's on resorts that's on brands that's on peers that's on so many people to like do the work that work is it should not be on marty's shoulders you know that work is on is on us to kind of think about how do we create a place that feels welcoming how do we open the doors so that people who might not have you know families like i did that introduced them to skiing might be able to access it but yeah i think that's i think what she's bringing up and i think i know you've written about this too is like how do we how do we make skiing more open and accessible in the future is like one of the most crucial questions that sport and, and like pretty much any outdoor space is facing right now i think do you have any thoughts on that things you think could be done better or differently um yeah <laughs> i think there's a lot of um i think where do, where do i Where's a good place to start on that? I mean, I think there's some level of like top-down work that needs to be done from from resorts, from brands, from the organizations that are, you know, have power and have sway in these in these places, in these towns. Um, and I think there's also sort of like a bottom-up social change that's a little trickier and more insidious. Um, and I think that's the part where somebody might bristle at the idea of like, you know, like I've, I've actually gotten a fair number of emails um, about the book kind of categorically from white men saying like, skiing doesn't have a problem. What are you talking about? It's fine. Black people can <laughs> see if they wanted to. And it's just like, how do I even start to unpack the reasons why somebody might not want to show up in a space where somebody like you is saying that to their face? Yeah. And I think, I don't know how that, I feel like I'm rambling over here because it's a really no, tricky I, question. It, but... it, uh, and it's, it, it's not at all surprising to me that you get those emails. Um, when I wrote I, uh, the story you mentioned in the New York Times this fall um, that mentioned some of the issues in skiing, among them being that it was not welcoming, it was not inclusive, and that was something it needed to work on. There were about a thousand online comments that accompanied the story, and the um, majority of them were uh, outraged that there was any suggestion that skiing had a race problem. And uh, it was, it, that in itself, uh, I mean, I wrote about a lot of other things in that story, but all you have to do is mention that. And, uh, and you know, to me, as you're saying as well, it wasn't a, a deep insight. When you have a sport that has single-digit representation of African Americans, um, it's important to be asking why. It's important to notice why does skiing not look like the rest of the world and to ask you know in 2023 is that okay you know what what should we be doing with that, about that but um yes there's nothing that gets people to push back harder than suggesting that yeah i mean it 
people come up like did you hear anything positive did people come up with like ideas or solutions or like what the what things no you know like? among the comments were a few brave souls because you know to contradict that narrative that there's no problem there's no race nothing to see here um that there's been some really interesting scholarship written about um, why skiing is so white. And um, it's really interesting to read that. I, I learned things, um, you know, how national parks were often conceived of to exclude uh, public transportation. You know, the various and uh, incredibly clever ways to exclude people uh, who were either, you know, who of lower income people, people of color from public spaces. Um, so this was not a new idea and people have looked into this but um there were a few comments like that but mostly it was just a, a lot of outrage um i'm curious you kind of as part of your research you took to the road uh, about a decade or so after you originally took to the road packed up a car and lived some version of the proverbial skied bum dream what was different for you a decade after you first took that journey in your little sedan um, from Boston, um, the second time around, now in your thirties. Yeah, um, I I think the thing that actually like struck me the most was how not not different it felt <laughs> in a way that was kind of shocking. Um, that it felt in a lot of and this kind of goes back to that you know like who is welcome question. Like I thought a lot about if I had shown up differently it would have been I would have been treated differently as I showed up in the sea towns but it felt fairly easy to kind of flip back into the you know show up couch surf chat with random people you know sea town milieu like it, I was sort of like is this okay that I'm acting like I'm 25 again or I'm not <laughs> um and I think that and this is maybe like a not just me like bigger question for the book too is that the thing that felt different was that it felt like there was a level of stress or hardness that kind of felt like it was more at the surface. And, you know, I knew going in, you know, a book's kind of like an interesting thing because you, you think you know what it's going to be about and then you start doing the reporting and it, you know, takes all these twisted turns and goes all sorts of different ways. Um, and I kind of knew going in that there were some things that I wanted to, you know, like things that felt like big issues that I wanted to touch on, like, you know, housing, for instance. Um, and as I was kind of bopping around in these different ski towns, the the lack of housing and the cost of housing and the cost of living was just like so much more front of mind than I thought it was going to be. You know, that kind of level of desperation. I don't know if desperation is the right word, but like, can I make this work? And can I keep making this work kind of came up for almost everyone that I talked to and especially kind of younger, less established people. So I think the the things that I knew were going to be stressful felt like they were even more stressful than I thought when I kind of got out there and got in the field. And, you know, one of the, one of the kind of core questions that I was trying to answer or think about in the book was, you know, like, like I said, I kind of moved to the mountains when I was 21 and, you know, did the seasonal job thing for a while. And then I, I washed out of it. I got hurt. I ended up going to journalism school. I'm kind of shifting into a different path. Um, but I watched my friends that I had been, you know, like a who'd been 22 year old ski patrollers with me 
um, try and buy houses and start families and try and kind of, you know, grow up and establish themselves in these places. And it felt like a real struggle in a lot of ways. And so kind of like looking at that question of like, can, why is it so hard? What are the factors? Can you kind of like grow up and establish yourself and have a start a family and put down roots in a, in a mountain town was really kind of like one of the core questions. And as I was pinging around, as I was looking at people who are kind of my peers and also folks who are younger and trying to do it and, you know, like people in their fifties and sixties and older who had kind of tried to establish it, like you could kind of see how the stress is carried down through generations. Hmm. Like how that, it feels like the, the pressure to kind of make it work in a lot of these places is even harder now than it ever has been. Do you think it's harder now or you're just noticing more now because you're a little bit older and more sensitive to what maybe really is going on behind, you know, the bright smile and the and the happy beer at the end of the day? Yeah, I think that's a like really, really good, important question to, to ask because I do think there's like a level of nostalgia involved in all of this. Like, oh, it used to be, used to be better in my day. It used to be easier. Um, and I think I've totally been guilty of that. I was at, right when the book came out, I did a talk in Denver and a, a guy that I used to ski patrol with, you know, we were kind of lamenting that idea that it's, everything's harder now. And he was like, guys, that's not true. Like you, when I started, there wasn't even a tunnel here. Like the road was so much worse. So I think there are some things that have, have gotten better, but I think that there, there are a couple of factors that have made it, are making it, have made it harder in a lot of spaces. Um, I think short-term rentals and second home ownership is a big one and kind of the rise of things like Airbnb that are big factors in the housing market. Um, I think the, um, the internet <laughs> as a force and I think the people's ability to work remotely and bring uh, salaries and incomes and kind of base level levels of income into a town that aren't tied directly to the wages in the town, I think have really skewed kind of the economic, economic scale of a lot of these places and made it, you know, even if you just look at the housing prices or something like that, have kind of skewed the baseline of that. Um, and I think there's a level of sort of social pressure that makes things harder too in the in the social media era where it's very easy to like look around and make it seem like everybody else is having a way better time than you are. But I think kind of, there are some kind of like mental health pressures. Um, and I think as resort company, I think, you know, climate's another thing that's made it hard, you know, like when we've had, there, there are a few resorts that are closing this week because they don't have enough snow. So I think that's another thing that has, has made it harder. Um, so yeah, I think there is a level of things look rosier in the past, but I do think that there are some very real factors that are challenging it now. Heather, I want to talk about some of your other writing. Um, last year, you wrote a story about inequality in ski towns and kind of pulled back the curtain on these places like Aspen that are known for their sort of glamorous veneer, but beneath it, there is measurable levels of inequality, you were using something uh, called the Gini coefficient, which is well known as a measure of inequality in the developing world, not in our own country, perhaps. 
So what did you find? Um, what is inequality look like in mountain towns today? Yeah, I think, and I think Aspen is a really interesting example because I think Aspen is sort of out on the out on the far end <laughs> of of ridiculousness when it comes to you know economic inequality, cost of living, and all that kind of thing. Um, and I think it is it is interesting that you kind of mentioned the developing world metrics as a or like ski town, the overlay of ski towns and developing world because I think in a lot of ways. Maybe like I'll tell a little story to try and explain this, but I I finished the first draft of this book right before, like in February of 2020, kind of right before COVID turned everything sideways and upside down. Um, and I was really worried, you know, like of course when you when you write a book, it's like the biggest thing in your world, and anything that goes wrong with it feels like a total explosion. Um, and I was really worried in the face of a global pandemic that writing about skiing would feel you know superficial or stupid or not important when there were like much more crucial things going on in the world um but as you know as time went by kind of through that it kind of started to feel like the questions we were asking in a lot of places about income inequality about how we treat frontline workers about how you know who has access to being outside were like almost it almost felt like ski towns were like putting a microscope on those things and really amplifying those questions. Um, and I think somewhere like Aspen, where the cost of living is really high, wages have been, you know, like not growing with the cost of living. Um, and the economy there really takes a huge level of service workers and service work to sustain itself. Um, is is starting to crumble in a lot of ways because people can't afford to live there because you know the people who keep the hotels and restaurants running are having to commute in from an hour away or can't you know the when we don't take care of and I'm not an economist by any means and I can probably talk myself out of my desk pretty quickly here but like when we don't take care of the bottom level of our economy our society our infrastructure like things start to start to crumble pretty quickly even when the even when you have all the money in the world. Right. So I think we're kind of seeing how that is starting to trickle down in a lot of places. Yeah. And of course, in Vermont, this has reached, you know, crisis proportions. Um, the same things are happening, uh, not just in uh, ski towns, but in hospitals and the ability mm -hmm. to get workers that the economy relies on uh, in the past. Uh, who were paid less now cannot afford uh, to live anywhere near them. And there are just numerous stories around Vermont that we hear of places having to close because they simply couldn't find workers anymore. And it's it's interesting to think about places like Aspen, places that have this allure, but it takes people to run them. And um, the more impossible it is for people to live where they work, um, you know, there are going to be businesses that are just closing down. Um, yeah. I, and I think, I, like you said, it's one thing for it to be restaurants or hotels or something like that, but it's another totally different thing when it's the hospitals, when it's the teachers, when it's the, you know, firemen and police and safety workers, like that stuff starts to fall when like you can't afford to live somewhere that stuff starts to fall apart really quickly. 
I want to talk about some of your other writing uh, because it is very much in the news these days. Your earlier book, Downriver, Into the Future of Water in the West, uh, you know, right now it uh, feels like every day we're hearing stories about water in the West. We're learning terms like Deadpool, which, um, you know, sounds like a horror movie, and it is a horror movie. Um, so maybe I'll have you start right there. For Easterners who aren't familiar with this term Deadpool that they may be hearing, um, what does that refer to? Yeah, Deadpool is the point um, in a dam, and especially a, a dam that produces hydroelectric power, where you you basically the water in the reservoir above the dam gets low enough that it can't produce power. Um, and in, we're hearing this a lot in terms of the Colorado River um, and Lake Mead and Lake Powell. And basically when you start to get to Deadpool, you're, you're hitting these cascading effects where there's not enough flow in the river for ecosystem health. You're also um, not getting power and power revenue, which funds a lot of the other kind of like functions of the river. So that's kind of like, I think it's a pretty clear tipping point for the point where the river is is maxed out and is not functioning in the way that we as a society have relied on it and expected it to function for the past going 100 years. Um, talk about your book, Down River, and um, the journey that you took and, and what got you interested in this. Yeah, yeah. So the um, the narrative, I guess, back on for Down River is um, it's about the Green River, which is the biggest tributary of the Colorado River, which, you know, we're hearing about all the time now, brings water to 40 million people across the West. It's kind of like the basis for the whole economy, our food system, electricity, kind of like all sorts of things that happen in the Western US. Um, and the green is the biggest tributary. It's in the upper basin of the Colorado River, which if folks are kind of, I know that water policy can get really wonky really quickly, but the um, Upper Basin and the Lower Basin of the Colorado were split um, in 1922 in the Colorado River Compact, which people call the Law of the River, which is basically like the overarching legal boundary for who gets water, uh, when and where. Um, and I paddled the length of the Green River to kind of look at um, how we use water in the West and kind of how it split up and why the system that we the legal and sort of logistical system that we set up 100 years ago is starting to fall apart now so i looked at um as i went down the river i looked at agriculture i looked at energy i looked at recreation um to kind of see how the pieces how water is used in all these different ways um and kind of like the powder day story kind of how we look at these old nostalgic mythological stories about what what society should be like and then why they don't they don't kind of hold up to, um, you know, a climate change reality and also kind of modern society and what we've, how we've kind of like overused our natural resources. Why did you pick the Green River? And, and I have a reason for asking that I have my own connection to the Green River because oh, in the, uh, in the 80s, I did a, um, what was the first self-sufficient canoe descent of the Green uh, with um, four other paddle, five other paddlers, um, it had been canoed before. It had certainly been rafted many times before, but nobody had done uh, an unsupported canoe descent. So, 
Uh, I have really, you know, it's, it's an incredible landscape and I always remember that trip. And it was one of the first stories that I did as a journalist, um, <laughs> was that the green. So what made you, what drew you to the green river? Yeah, there's like, there's a couple of reasons. There's sort of, um, I guess the sort of like emotional flashpoint reason was that the green was the first Western river that I had ever paddled. And like I mentioned earlier, I had been a raft guide to college. And like when I moved West, I was still, my mother says it was like the only marketable skill I had for a long time. Um, <laughs> so I was, you know, like I was sort of a, you know, a river person. It was a big part of my livelihood and also how I spent my time and my friend group. And I had come out to Utah in college and had paddled Desolation Canyon, which is this kind of beautiful, you know, five-day river trip um, through canyons in kind of on the Utah-Colorado border. And I was totally, totally blown away by it. Like I hadn't seen anything like it before. And that was sort of one of the, one of the strands of like me wanting to move west. Um, and then as I started, like I said, I was kind of this river person. And then as I became a journalist, I realized that, you know, even though I was somebody who cared a lot about rivers and was paying attention, I really didn't understand water policy and how water was divided and kind of like how, how the system worked, even though I was sort of entangled in it. So I started looking at, you know, what was, what were the questions around how water got allocated and divided up? What was water used for? Um, and I kept kind of going back to the green, you know, the Colorado was just like iconic, massive river that like lots of people have written about and people are looking at all the time. Um, and the green kind of felt like it held all the, all the things that I was thinking about in this, it was like almost a container for all the, like a microcosm of all the factors that were coming to a head. So it was sort of like, I had this connection to this place and it was like, it had maybe not the answers to all the questions, but like questions about all the questions. So um, not to, uh, you know, make you predict the ending of this story. Where do you think this story is going about the Colorado drying up? And it sure sounds like we're going to hit Deadpool. There's, you know, they're going to have to. Um, what do you see when you look down the river? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, this down river came out in 2019. And, and I was kind of like, oh, we couldn't get to this point. And Four years later it already feels like i had you know it's already almost irrelevant like i already overshot the ending um and i think you know what what's in the news right now is that the seven states in the colorado river basin are trying to last year um they were kind of given a deadline to figure out how to use less water and they blew by the deadline and we haven't figured it out yet and we're still in this really mired kind of state versus state and also the river flows in Mexico, there's international factors. It's like really tricky loggerheads about how to change the way that we use water. Um, and water is really, really tricky because um, there's sort of the, the logistical level or the math level where you could be like, well, everybody take, you know, all the states need to take 10% less, but that has, there's no easy way to do that. It's so embedded in how we, our societies are formed, who gets who, you know, where we grow food, how cities are built. Um, so it's, we're in this really sticky, you know, working of how we're gonna, we, ha we, we know that we have to reduce water use in Colorado. Um, 
and part of the problem, maybe to step back a little bit, part of the part of the reason why we are where we are right now is that when the river was allocated through um, what's called prior appropriations, which is basically means there's a, there's a list based in time of who gets water when, and the first people who are allocated water rights get all their water before the next person does. Um, and when they allocated that water, it's also split up state by state, so each state gets a certain amount. Um, and when they did that math, they basically did the math wrong, and they overestimated how much they they kind of looked at the hydrology in what we now think is basically the wettest period in human history. Um, so they overallocated the river by um, 20% basically. And then climate change has been depleting water even further because precipitation is falling differently. We're getting more rain than snow, which means that our water storage is different. And then when it's hotter, as it has been, everything, you know, every plant and animal needs more water. So there's been more kind of water use and evaporation. Um, and so we're in this problem now where we, the math didn't line up in the first place. We're hitting the end of the bottom of the reservoir which has given us some like wiggle room for the since the 60s when um, the uh, Glen Canyon Dam and the Hoover Dam were built. And there's no easy, fair way to just make cutbacks. So we're trying to figure out the cutbacks right now. And it's really, really hard. And, and I think this is sort of uh, like a the first line of really tricky policy, logistical questions that we're gonna be facing across the board when it comes to, you know, water and natural resources and climate issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, it is so consequential, the kind of cutbacks to cities and their ability to exist, uh, to farmers and, you know, the kind of, um, industrial scale farming that feeds the whole country and what it actually means to turn off the spigot. It, it's almost hard to wrap your head around how this thing is going to play out and whether anybody's going to be able to come to agreement before the water just runs out. Um, yeah. Yeah. It looks like a, like a horror movie pretty quickly. It does. And also, you know, like ecosystem services and the health of, you know, the environment, like there's all these, all these uses are stacked on top of each other and there's, and it's a zero sum game. Like there's gonna, there's gonna be losses, which is a scary reality to kind of look at. I want to talk about a a new book you've just signed on to write, Fierce Country. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I'm really I'm really excited. Well, I'm I'm right at the kind of excited, nervous part where I'm totally overwhelmed by the reporting research. <laughs> but um, the the gist of this new book is that it's going to be sort of a triple stranded biography of three women who were really I think really pivotal and kind of forming. The outdoor industry and also the kind of environmental ethic of the last half century um who whose stories never really got told or who kind of like disappeared from the narrative so one of them is one of the first grand canyon guides there's a woman who's kind of an ecologist and a naturalist in, in new york um and a woman who's like a pivotal part of looking at snow science and avalanches and also kind of environmentally like a environmental philosophy and kind of how we think about humans place in, in the world. So I'm kind of looking back at their stories. Who, who um, are the three women? Are you open to saying? Yeah, I can say it's um Georgie White, who's a Grand Canyon guide, um, Dolores LaChapelle, who's uh who wrote a book called Deep Powder Snow that is kind of important for skiers in a lot of ways. 
Um, and then Anne Labastille, mm. who's in Northern New York. Um, and so looking at kind of how their, how their careers played out and then also kind of what that, what that means still in, you know, an outdoor world where, like we were talking about earlier, a lot, oftentimes the archetype of the person who is there is a, is a man. What um, drew you to want to tell, <laughs> what drew you to want to tell their stories? Um, I think I'd sort of been obsessed with them all individually. Dolores, Dolores comes up in Powder Days a little bit. Georgie gets a little mention in Downriver. Um, and I've been, you know, the, the kind of like sneaky cool thing about writing a book is that, like, I, I really felt like this in Powder Days is that you, it gives you a chance to really like investigate your own life choices. And I think in a lot of ways, I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about mentorship and role models and who I look up to and how, you know, when we think about what we're going to do for work or where we want to live or how we form families, like how, what the, what the goalposts are for those and how you decide. And like these three women for me have been sort of, you know, like pivotal figures in ways to do that they're interesting as like examples and they were all complicated and did not have easy lives and sort of like pushed up against a lot of boundaries in a way that I think is really fascinating so I think yeah it's like part of me is like I get to follow selfish line of curiosity have you already <laughs> spent a lot of time with are, are they all three alive they're not they've all passed away um and I have spent a, a varying amount of time with people who knew them and in the places where they were. So this is also, yeah, it's like, it's a very different kind of research for me. You know, like so going back to the archives, trying to piece things together. What is one insight that you have gained about yourself from what you've learned about these three remarkable women? Oh man, you're like coming in with a hard question. <laughs> I mean, I think that a thing that I've had is kind of challenge in myself, and I think that is true in a lot of um, adventure narratives or outdoor narratives or those kinds of stories, is that you have to, I think we really valorize, like, the lone wolf and the people who go it alone, and, and I think for a long time, I felt like I had to be the only girl or the tough one, and I don't, I don't think that's true, and I don't think that's necessarily, like, a good way to be, so I think I've been doing some kind of looking in the mirror about why I have acted and made choices the way that I have in the past. Hmm. Man, I got, I got to think about that question a little bit more. Well, you're kind of at the beginning. So I'll ask you that question when you get further on in your research, because it does seem, um, you know, when you look into the lives of trailblazers like that, um, who have, you know, often been, the spotlight has been on somebody else, you know, with Dolores LaChapelle, the spotlight was on her husband, who was a pioneer in avalanche research. Ed LaChapelle was a, his book was a book I grew up with. You know, that's how I first learned anything about avalanches was his uh, book. And then only in later years did I hear about her. Uh, so you're, you're kind of uncovering things that stories that were in plain sight, but just were not valued before. And um, yeah, I imagine it must be very meaningful. I'm 
so interested to hear, uh, to read what you write when you finally get to that point. Um, when you look at, I mean, a lot of your writing has kind of been reflecting on, you know, your own life. You, you reflect on your ski bum days uh, with powder days. What kind of themes do you see in your own journey that you've been telling in these stories? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I worry that I like have spent, you know, my I'm about to be 40. I've spent like my 30s writing about things that I did in my 20s. <laughs> and I'm like I'm running out of road here. But I think um, <laughs> I I think in a lot of ways, I think a lot about like writing, trying to write stories that I want to read. And I think that in a lot of ways, I really like to read things with a strong first person narrator. That's like something that I gravitate towards. And I think in a lot of ways, writing the first person kind of like filtering through your own experience can be a way to put the reader on the ground and like look at, you know, like look at, you know, here's now we're now we're looking at this person who's been a ski bum for 60 years. So I think that sometimes it's like not always about necessarily about me but I think that you sort of subconsciously <laughs> filter through when you're writing and I think that maybe now I'm getting far away from your question but I think for me it's it's really been a way to reflect on like okay why do why do I think rivers are important what is it about that that like makes me drawn to it and how can I kind of like pull out the the factors of like what does water mean I don't know it's like a way it's more like a way for me to ask questions. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. <laughs> Are you now, uh, you're still a working journalist, as you're also an author. Uh, talk about some of the things you're working on right now. Um, I'm working on a story today that's about um, kind of like the future of the power grid and what happens as you know, the kind of like the complicated ways that as people, as battery storage and solar gets better, how we kind of still maintain the grid and public infrastructure. And I think there's actually some super interesting, I don't know if you guys have talked about this, there's some pretty interesting examples in Vermont of how the power company has been proactive in trying to make sure that we can connect, you know, small scale solar systems and some things like that to the grid. Is there a theme to your interests as a journalist that you can identify a connecting thread I, I heard a yeah um I think it was Michael Pollan I heard like a interviewer podcast with him where he was like I feel like journalists like everyone kind of has a core core question or a core couple of questions and I think in a lot of ways the question is for me is why why do we feel connected to play like how do we impact places and how do places impact us at the core of the powder days, the question was like, why does it feel important for me to go skiing? You know, a thing that is like on its face, kind of stupid and selfish. And, but I know, you know, somewhere in my body that it does feel really important. And like, okay, why, why is that? Well, I think that's a great note of mystery and wonder to end on. So <laughs> uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, thanks for giving me good questions to think about.